people are drawn to you for your specific skill set that only you can fill. There's a U-shaped hole in the universe and you've created that gravitational pull that people find you. And I think as far as careers go, the more unique you are or the more unsubstitutable you are, the better compensated you will be. And the more you enjoy your job, to be honest. Hello and welcome to MetaMuse. Muse is a tool for thought on iPad and Mac. This podcast isn't about Muse the product, it's about Muse the company and the small team behind it. I'm Adam Wiggins, here with my colleague Mark McGranigan. Hey Adam. And joined today by Sean Wang, who goes by Swix. Hey, happy to be here. And Sean, I understand you're a former competitive tennis player. Tell me about that. It was kind of my high school thing. When I was growing up, my mom trained me on table tennis back home, just recreationally. Maybe she sensed that you might someday have a career in startups and knew that this would be a critical <laughs> break room activity. <laughs> yeah, actually. Actually, it does really help in the old days when we had offices. Remember those days? Now we ha- just have like Wii tennis or <laughs> VR tennis. <laughs> no, then, you know, when it came to high school, I upgraded to tennis. I was on my tennis school team, high school team. And then when I served in the military, because every Singaporean has to serve two years in the army, I represented my battalion at our tennis championship. And we actually won, which is fun. Although I was kind of the bench person, so I didn't actually play, but I was on the team. <laughs> so I guess to say we won. And you're the author of a book on career. You run a community that's going to tie into our topic today, but... I'd love to hear about your full background and in particular the work you do on developer experience with Temporal. Sure. I basically got the bit by the finance bug in college because I saw the Asian financial crisis and then the tech slump. And I realized that a lot of people in finance seem to be like masters of the universe. They seem to always know what's going on. And also they seem to be, at least in the hedge fund world, capable of being independent of the economic cycle. In other words, if you see a recession coming, you can actually position yourself to profit from it rather than just be tied to the general cycles of the economy. So I set myself a goal of working at a hedge fund, went to college for that. And then finally, after a long sequence of events, arrived at a hedge fund and then realized I didn't like it. (laughs) I didn't like the people I worked with and for, and I was okay. I was sort of middling in my analyst rankings, but I wasn't going to be great. And while I was doing my finance stuff, I learned to code. And basically every junior finance person that comes up through the ranks these days becomes a self-taught programmer because you have to. Is that sort of like an Excel kind of automation thing? Or is there something further than that? Do you get into data science? Yeah. yeah. Starts with Excel and then VBA, Python. And then for me, because I did option pricing, Haskell, because that was the company I worked at Center Chartered where there was the house language and I just didn't have a choice. It was only after I left Star Charted that I had any idea that Haskell was this sort of revered language of functional programmers. Yeah, and so I decided to kind of go in on that. I also read the writing on the wall in terms of public market investing versus private markets. Like It seemed like companies were staying private for longer and more wealth was being created in the private markets as opposed to the chumps like me in hedge funds trying to trade public stock where there was comparatively less growth. Obviously, not no growth, but less growth. So I did a transition at age 30 from finance to tech. And that was a pretty scary one because just starting over at zero from you know my previous career, I sort of strived for 10 plus years to get there, to get where I got and then having to start over and not know anything, I think was pretty scary. 
It also sounds like something that maybe in a way takes more courage because it's not that you didn't have a career. You actually did have one. You worked hard. You found yourself that place. It's probably something that definitely paid the bills and then some, I would imagine. So, you know, it's one thing when you're forced out of a career due to changing economic circumstances or age or some other thing, and then you have to restart. That's pretty hard to do, but maybe the decision has sort of been made for you by circumstance. But here you made the much more active choice to say, like, I don't think this is where the future is. For me, yeah, it was a very personal choice. Obviously, I think the people that do extremely well still in finance and I keep in touch with some of them. But I am pretty open about what I left on the table. So my first year as a hedge fund analyst, I made 350K. And there was a path from that to seven digits, you know, which I would probably be there by now if I had stayed in finance. But I think actually having had a prior career, I think actually reduces that risk, at least because I had a standing offer to go back to my previous bank if I wanted to. Mm. So I knew that like, all right, I could give myself a couple of years or so, try this transition out. If it didn't work out, I could just go back to my old job, which I loved. And I had a lot of fun with, uh, they just didn't pay as well as the hedge fund. But yeah, I think it wasn't that risky. Plus, it actually helped me get a job when I came out the other side of the transition. because I did a boot camp in New York, uh, the Full Stack Academy. And the first employer that I sat down with was Two Sigma, which is a well-known quantitative hedge fund in New York. And they liked my story. They liked that I was a former trader and that I now knew how to code. Mm. So they hired me based on that and then continued on to completely disregard my finance side and just only use the tech stuff. But it's a story you can tell in career change. So the way I talk about it is that you take your used experience and you know you sort of trade it in for a dollar credit at the store. And it's kind of like GameStop in the sense that they kind of rip you off in terms of how much credit they give you. But you get to at least tell a story to get your foot in the door in a more compelling way than a lot of other people who don't have as much of a good story to tell. You know, I had people who were with me in that boot camp that were former chefs. So that guy actually got a job at Blue Apron. <laughs> mm. Wasn't that great, you know, and didn't turn out that well. But like, it helps. I think for a lot of career transitioners, that's kind of the advice I try to give them. Like, try to make use of your unfair advantages because the cards will be stacked against you. You're up against people who have coded since they were like 12 and have CS degrees and stuff. You got to find your way to make it in this industry. And once you get that first job, everything else is relevant. No. So that's kind of what I say for that. So spent some time in Two Sigma and then started really getting active in the New York tech scene, which is a huge part of my story. I attended and spoke at every single meetup in New York. And I blogged about JavaScript and React. And that got me noticed. So Netlify reached out and I joined there for a really good two years where I started to build my sort of public profile as a developer advocate, and also an engineer on their CLI and the serverless node ecosystem there. That led into a job at AWS, where I did kind of the same thing, but bigger because AWS Amplify is kind of like their Netlify clone with more services attached to it. So with DynamoDB and with GraphQL, with location services and mobile testing services, a bunch of really good stuff. And then I wrote a blog post about what I thought was missing in the serverless ecosystem. And that eventually led to my job at Temporal because I concluded that serverless was really good at short-lived compute that scales to zero and scales to infinity, but it's terrible at long-running jobs. It's terrible at asynchronous tasks. And the solutions that were available today, namely AWS Set Functions and you know other equivalents out there, weren't really good. Like they presented too much friction for me to effectively express the kind of 
business logic that I saw out there that was actually worth so much money. So yeah, just essentially blogging got me the job I have today, which is pretty cool. And also helped me transition from a front-end career to serverless to a back-end focused career now. And it's been a wild ride. Yeah, what you described there, the building a public presence and certainly the learning something and then turning around and sharing that is something that we've touched on. Actually, I realized we're kind of inadvertently doing a small mini-series here. We did an episode on building public. Our last one here was <laughs> on sort of personal brand. And so I'm going to go ahead and say that this is three of three in a series where the career <laughs> topic helps bring it all together. But yeah, sort of learn something and write about it or share it in that moment when you kind of can see both that you remember what it's like to not know the thing, but now you know the thing and you can you know, pass that kind of mental diff on to others is pretty powerful and seems like you got the sort of maximum leverage out of doing exactly that. So I'm known for this essay that I wrote on learning in public. And that's actually a piece that I wrote as an advice for my fellow bootcamp grads when I was asked to go back and give a speech. And it was pretty funny because I think it was a reflection on the diff between my finance and my tech career. So in finance, everything is zero sum. If you get a trade idea, you should try not to leak it before you've established a position. And once you've established a position, sure, go ahead and pop your bags. But in tech, we share our code. We get up on stage and we share our failures and outage stories. It's just so fundamentally open because it's such a blue ocean field. Right? It's still expanding so much that we don't actually care that we're giving up some of our trade secrets. Because the hope is that other people who receive that benefit will reciprocate in some way or form. But I found that just much more fitting to my natural inclination. But also I think I found that my career grew much better in a healthier way in a sense that I wasn't trying to get one up on my peers. I was working with them and sharing what I know or did not know helped them to teach me or correct me or whatever. And that improved me, my, my pace of learning. So I always call it not an act of altruism. You're not giving back to the community so much as like this is actually... Even if you're totally self-interested, this is legitimately the fastest way to learn, which is to learn in public. And tell me about Temporal. Temporal is a open source workflow engine. And I try to categorize this piece of software in relation to other engines, which are effectively custom purpose databases. So if you think about a search engine, you could do full text search on a database just by yourself, but you probably wouldn't because search is such a well-defined custom problem domain that you should probably adopt some custom solution like Elasticsearch or TypeSense or whatever else is cool these days on it. And similarly, like an analytics engine, yeah, it's a form of database, but it's a very focused database for analytics workloads, which are high input and sort of a lot of aggregate reads. And so similarly, I think workflow engines are an underexplored area of custom database that have until now been typically mostly hand-rolled. But I think People are finding that there are just so many opportunities to use these workflows, which is what we call them, in a variety of situations. And so just to explain a little bit more about what that means, a workflow is kind of a long-running durable function. Imagine if to write a monthly billing subscription, all you had to do was have an infinite loop, charge your credit card, and then sleep until the next month. And that's it. So you don't have to set a separate cron job. Like the cron job is effectively automatically provisioned when you call that API for sleeping to the next period. 
So, Sean, when we were speaking before, you mentioned some use cases that kind of made it concrete for me. You know, on the consumer side, you have something like anything delivery-oriented or rideshare ordering something from the moment you say, okay, bring this vehicle or package or whatever it is to me, or even something like checkout, like e-commerce, you know, when you hit that, okay, buy this thing button on Amazon or wherever else, you have essentially opened a very long-running, real-world transaction that may last days until that package comes to you, or even longer if it gets lost or something like that. And so during this whole time, there is a sense that that's an open activity, but it's not open in the sense that I have the app open on my phone or that it's open on my computer. It's the sense that it's sort of running and the system needs to keep trying to converge that against some completion, where the completion is the delivered order or the car shows up or the thing's imported somehow. And then at that point, you know, then the transaction is complete. And more and more, I think, as we have more and more of these kinds of services on the consumer side, at least, maybe we see more and more of these long-running asynchronous kind of user interfaces, you might call them. Yeah, I think so too. Our CEO was actually at Amazon when they implemented the one-click buy button, which is essentially, if you think about it, turning the purchase process from a synchronous process of, all right, add to shopping cart and then go to shopping cart and then enter your details for checkout to, all right, click this and then register that there's a purchase intent and let people cancel if they change their minds within the next 30 seconds, if they made a mistake or if they just changed their minds. And after that 30 second timer, can continue to proceed with that order. But you've just reduced the number of clicks and you know shopping cart abandonment rates are like 60, 70%. So it's just better user experience, on, at least on the surface, obviously. There are other issues with one-click checkout, which is a impulse buys. <laughs> but, <laughs> but that happens to be in the favor of Amazon. But that's my pitch for a lot of non-technical sort of UX type people. I think there are a lot of user experiences that can be improved by turning sync to async. Another example that I often like to bring up is Descript, which is actually a customer of ours. And so Descript is an audio editing tool, which takes transcriptions of your audio podcasts and turns it into sort of like an editable Google Doc where they sync up your audio clips with the words that are on the transcript. And you can just delete words or add words like you would a standard Google Doc. All of that is powered by Temporal in the backend because it starts to farm out work that might potentially be long running. Descript, surprisingly, if you've ever tried to throw in like a three-hour podcast into Descript, it actually takes pretty much the same amount of time because they chop up that audio and farm it out to a dozen little API servers. I don't think I can say what they use, but they do that transcription in parallel and they do a lot of reliability checking behind the scenes to make sure that they got that accurate. I think people take for granted the reliability of these things, but like it's so common for custom engineer code to forget some use cases to have some race conditions where you would have some order go through, your system might go down or like some things might happen out of sequence because you know, computers, and you would lose an order. It would just disappear, vanish, and you would have no idea where it went. And this happened to the scripts, actually. We're able to quote them because they said this in our case study. And I was just so happy to hear that because I was like, oh, I'm not the only one. It's not that I'm a bad engineer. Like, this is just the way things are. And you need a well-organized and architected system to take that problem away from you because I'm trying to build my app. I'm not trying to solve this weird distributed systems problem. So I'm very grateful that I found this they found me actually because of my blog posts, which is another bringing back to the career topic. I joined this company as employee 17 before we made our first dollar in revenue. And now we're a unicorn company. And unicorn here being the startup slang for a private market valuation of at least $1 billion. 
Yes, sir. <laughs> I forget that. I sometimes have to explain this to some audiences. But this is not the kind of job that you would go on a job board and go like, all right, out of these like five very competitive offers, like I would just pick one of them. The job doesn't exist until you talk to them and you create the job yourself. I named my own job and created my own job because I thought that that's where I would be most valuable to the company. And I think a lot of jobs are like that in a sense that there's like the 20% of jobs that are listed and then there's like the 80% of jobs that are like, you know, I just hired my friend who knows this stuff really well. <laughs> so perhaps that is a good segue into the career topic. I don't know. <laughs> Quite so. Like it's so fresh to me that I'm still reeling from how this happened because it's been the best career move I ever made. Yeah, well, we'd love to expand on that story a little bit. But yeah, maybe now is the right time to introduce the topic, which clearly we've hinted at. So that's career. And before we get into a lot of specifics here, again, you've written this book titled The Coding Career Handbook, and it is focused, I think, on the engineering or developer side. But you know, obviously, I think a lot of this is generalizable, or we can talk today about something that certainly applies to probably everyone that's in a design or product or general tech world product development job. But as always, I like to start with a little definition. I'd love to hear what the word career means to both of you. You know, Adam, I should know better by now that whenever we're doing a podcast on a noun, I should think of my good definition ahead of time. Yeah, I don't know. I might call a career the course and consequences of your professional endeavors. And the reason I like that is because it talks about both what you end up doing and the implications that it has for you personally. And to me, it also implies something that's not super linear. Sometimes people think about career and it's like, okay, I decide 18 and I'm going to do this and I do it for 40 years and this is a ladder and boom, boom, boom. And I think the reality of careers is much more diffuse and nonlinear and probabilistic now. We can talk about how that is, but that's how I think about it. And definitely echo the fact that it is nonlinear. I have a more cynical take, which is like the career is the story that you retroactively tell after you do the things that you've done and you're trying to spin a narrative that was what you intended all along. But I think it's very much in the vein of Steve Jobs' Stanford commencement speech when he says, like, you can only connect the dots looking backwards. And that's definitely how I have experienced life so far. I definitely think that there are other more, air quotes, career-oriented people who plan everything out. They have their 20-year roadmap for their lives. Some of them achieve that and many don't. But their take is valid too. I just don't particularly subscribe to that. I think in this day and age, the careers are a lot more mobile and random than they may have been in our previous generations. Yeah, for me, I think that word early in my life, I had a negative association with that word that it makes you think of maybe corporate ladder climbers and you know, you're know <laughs> sort of like trying to kiss up to the boss in order to like get that next slot, you know, make more money, get the corner office, have a more impressive title. And a lot of it turns into just kind of status ladder games and that sort of thing. And so I felt kind of repelled from even thinking about actively the path of my career. But later on, I think I came to feel, okay, well, that is like a negative version of that. And maybe there's also this, what you described there, Shauna, this is the planned out thing, which is just some fields either demand that because they just require a lot of education. Being a surgeon, for example, it's just, <laughs> you kind of have to have that plan and really pursue it. It's not something you can kind of just dabble in and find out if it suits you. And so I think those of us that like a little bit more of a exploratory path, you know, the tech world where it is much more like a opportunistic and ever-changing world and you just try to adapt and find your place in it, maybe that suits us all. 
But yeah, I think for me now, and of course we can also talk about the difference between, you know, being kind of an entrepreneur or founder type versus going to work at companies that already exist. But I do think they share the commonality that it's a way to think about as a first class concern. We spend typically a third of our lives at work. How am I going to make sure to spend that time well? And I think, again, coming to those of us who are in tech, we're lucky enough. I mean, I think for a lot of people, a job is really about putting food on the table. It's filling a very basic need. It's that almost the lowest rung there on the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We're lucky enough. We're very employable in a growth industry. And so we have the option to think more in terms of like, oh, I can get several job offers from several good companies. And sure, I can compare how much money I earn from them, but I can also think, move up that hierarchy of needs and think in terms of like, what's the meaning that I want? How do I want to live my life? How do I want to spend my work day? And what's the impact I want to have with that work? And that's a great privilege to be able to do that. But then I think it's worthwhile to be a little thoughtful about how you spend that in order to make sure that that retroactive story is the best one it can be. Yeah. I think there's a lot of fit with personality types as well. So there'll be some personality types that crave structure. Tell me what to do and I'll go do it. Whereas others, they refuse to be told what to do. They need to find it out for themselves. And so the career paths for these two different types would be very different. <laughs> so I think you have to figure out what you are and no shame in either approach, really. I will say that career ladders are imposed by companies partially to give you a path to career development, to give you some kind of fair rubric on like, all right, you've reached these requirements. You obviously deserve the next level and the next bump in compensation. But then the, I like to call these barbarians, the people who don't believe in structure, would say, all right, you're constraining my growth. I could go out there and strike out on my own and do actual things that matter in business. And if I deserve that in the marketplace, then I'll get my reward, not some fake artificial internal metric that you made up. So I have empathy with both because ultimately, even if as an entrepreneur, if you're someone who starts entrepreneuring because you don't like traditional corporate structures and climbing those ladders, if you hire people, you're going to have to establish career ladders for them because they want to know how they grow with you and your company. So can't really run from it. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely true. Different people need different amounts of structure and maybe like a rule zero thing here in successfully pursuing your career is self-knowledge. And of course, you can't necessarily know that prescriptively right out the gate, but in your process of having experiences, working at companies, taking freelance jobs, doing side projects, you start to learn what works for me. Where do I thrive? Where am I energized? Where do I deliver things that people seem to really like or want to pay me for? Where do I struggle? Where do I not enjoy the work? Where do I feel my energy drained? And then learn from that. And, you know, I certainly learned pretty early that I want as little structure imposed as possible. I'm the frontiers person that likes just the wide open space where I can go and just find opportunity where it may lie. And then there's maybe some that like heavy amounts of structure, but I think most are somewhere in between. And I think one that comes to mind, maybe this describes you talking a little bit about not every job opportunity in a company is even publicized, which is what I usually call the intrapreneurship, right? Which is that same concept of looking for opportunities, but you can only see once you're inside the company. You're there working at a more standard role, but then the company is, especially at a startup where things are changing all the time, and you see there's some new need the company has that's sort of unfulfilled, 
And, you know, maybe the top level management or leaders of the company should spot that and like form a new department or something. But that's also an opportunity for someone who's at the company, has the context and feels drawn. You know, I'd like to solve this problem and I think there's a role here. I want to make that my job. And they take the steps to kind of create that structure, create that space for themselves. I'll be curious to see some research on the success rate of entrepreneurship like that. Because a lot of times I see those ideas get shot down and then they leave and then they do the thing anyway. Because, yeah, it's not in line with the company management goal or whatever. Yeah, that's right. I think sometimes being an entrepreneur is someone that really should actually be an entrepreneur and they're in the wrong place <laughs> to pursue that opportunity. And I like to think sometimes in terms of venues. So you see an opportunity at the company that you're at, maybe kind of carving out a new role for yourself at that company is a great opportunity, but maybe that actually is a thing that's not best done there and should be done somewhere else at another company, at your own company. And then, of course, sometimes there's the even more dramatic version of that is maybe the thing you want to do isn't even in your current field. And there you actually want to completely switch fields, kind of like you did. So I think we always have to think about the work we're doing as being inside a nested series of containers. And to do great work, we think of that as being something that's inside ourselves and something maybe individual, or maybe this is just my kind of American culture bias, the kind of you know individualist perspective, which is thinking okay, the way I'm going to be successful is having great skills, but it indeed is the systems you plug into the organizations and being the right place at the right time. And I think for me, part of career is following the opportunities to try to put yourself in the right place at the right time to be able to do something meaningful and have a big impact. Yeah, if I can synthesize and emphasize some of the things I'm hearing here. I think it's really important to take agency over one's career. And that's about, like you said, Adam, understanding oneself first and understanding the world and what's out there and making deliberate decisions about how you're going to move forward in that world towards achieving whatever ends you want. And I think you've got to be aware that you're probably going to be facing trade-offs among all the different desiderata of one's career. You know, the field, the flexibility, the size of the company, the compensation. And I think importantly, it's my belief that the world doesn't owe you a living and it certainly doesn't owe you your dream job doing whatever you want, making as much as you want, wherever you want, in whatever conditions you want, right? You're gonna have to go out there and find something that works. In the same way that an entrepreneur can't just do a company that makes whatever and sells whatever at whatever price and expect the market to accept that. You know, you gotta go out there and find what's desired, what's valued, what fits with your interests, what skills you bring, and make a deliberate decision like that. And the zeroth mistake that I see people making is not understanding themselves. And the first mistake that I see them making is not taking responsibility for their own career decisions and just kind of sleepwalking into something, which sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't. I have a follow-up question, Mark. If you think about the importance of understanding yourself, where are you on in terms of correcting weaknesses versus just betting on strengths? So one of my big personal philosophies is to be honest with oneself. And I think it's really hard to make yourself something that you're not, to kind of fundamentally change your personal characteristics and personality type, I think, as you described earlier. So I think that kind of stuff is really hard to work against. You're going to be going really uphill. I think there are skills that one can develop, and that's probably worth doing. But I think you've got to differentiate between those. And overall, I would lean towards emphasizing your strengths and finding a field and a job that taps into that. Because again, you're going to be going uphill your whole career if you're working against that. I think the path I took for that was not thinking, okay, here's a weakness, let me see if I can become really great at it, but to first of all be aware of it, 
Secondly, to perform maybe some basic mitigation. Don't make it be a big blind spot or gap that you just can't do anything about. So one example might be, I know this comes up a lot for engineering and design types, which is like salary negotiation or negotiations generally around compensation and other things. We like to make things. We don't like to do deal shenanigans or something. And many people feel very, very uncomfortable doing that sort of thing. And I probably count myself among them. But for me, I think fairly early on, I realized that that is an important part of being in business, about having a career. There's going to be certain critical negotiations and you do need to be able to represent yourself and your interests. And for myself, at least, it was worth taking a little time to shore up that weakness so that I wasn't just either completely awful at it or just that it was a huge blind spot. Mm. But in no world is there, am I ever going to be a great deal maker, a great negotiator, you know, the hostage negotiator guy or whatever. <laughs> What's that book? Never split the difference. Yeah, that's the one. But it's full of advice where I read it and I go, mm, it's hard to imagine myself, you know, doing that or anything like it. But I can know what it looks like to be great at that. I can look for people that I want to be on the team. You know, I can recognize the value of that skill and think, you know, it's good to have a business partner or a colleague that has that skill and to respect that skill and hope that they can deploy it in service of you know our team and that I deploy my skills in service of our team, maybe skills they don't have. So I see it as like kind of a protecting from a downside rather than long-term investing. And when it comes to yeah. investing and learning, it's your strengths and those things where you start investing and you just see those really quick and high returns on what you're doing because it's something you like to do and you're good at. As a poker player, I kind of call that a leak in your game. Like, you should know your strengths and what your sweet spot is, but also if you have any leaks or tells, then probably should know about it and do the bare minimum to correct for it. You know, you're not going to be a better player by only plugging leaks in your game, but you're at least going to maximize on your potential value. So that's pretty good. One thing I often bring up, which is a wonderful piece of career advice from Julia Evans, which is to write a brag document. And this is something that is useful in negotiation in promo conversations or in just in regular annual review conversations, which I think people should do more of, which is essentially don't expect your manager to know everything you've done. You think it's their job, but they have like eight other people that they're managing. They have their own stuff going on. They have your interests at heart. It's not their top priority of the day, even though they might say it is. It's in for sure in your best interest to represent yourself really well, even though you feel uncomfortable about it. But you're also not going to represent yourself really well because you're going to have recency bias and all the human cognitive issues of memory and self-deprecation or being humble. So Julia Evans's advice is to keep a fresh document that you maintain of the things you've done and the outcomes, the quotes, the measurable numbers, preferably some secret, some idea of chronological order that fairly represents the kind of work that you've done over the year. And I think that's a wonderful thing that you can just take to the bank or just bring up because you'll be asked for these things at the most inconvenient times. There's official performance reviews, but then it's actually oftentimes the unofficial vibe checks, I'll call them. <laughs> when you're asked like, oh, yeah, how's it going? And then, you know, you'd have like a really crappy answer. But if you came prepared, you'd actually have a really amazing answer and that person will walk away with a much better impression of the things that you've done for the company and that's just positive for you in literally every situation. So my version of this because I'm too disorganized to keep a brag document is I keep a brag Slack channel. I have a Slack channel to myself where I just pop in 
stuff as they happen that I would like to brag about in the future. And Slack just keeps a reverse chronological order of things that I can look back on. I love that. And the word brag is actually really interesting because, you know, when I have been in the position of offering career advice to friends or colleagues in the field or whatever, representing yourself well and honestly is something that I think is really important. And that's one reason I like, for example, having a personal website or some kind of online profile. I guess a resume or a CV serves some of this purpose, but people don't tend to update it other than when they're job hunting and it's a very particular format and that sort of thing. But having some way that you can say kind of, here's who I am, what I've accomplished and what I'm about, what I value, what I'm passionate about, what you should know about me if we're going to work together in some way or I'm going to come work at your company or whatever. And I often find many folks are very uncomfortable about this. And I think there is sometimes a cultural thing. I heard from a few German folks when I moved out here, and I basically just wrote a little document that was a gist, you know, one of these GitHub sort of short scratch pad things where I basically said, hey, I'm looking for companies to work with. This is what I've accomplished. This is what I'm good at. This is what I'm not good at. This is my ideal profile of company. And here's the kinds of problems I can help you with. You think this is interesting. Let's talk. And I shared this with a number of folks and a few folks expressed surprise and one said well you know i love the american swagger that comes across in this and <laughs> what does that mean and they say well you know at least where i grew up and maybe this especially with east germany it's very much about don't ever state your accomplishments or what you think you're good at keep your head down stay quiet let the work speak for itself and that any kind of accounting in that form is a kind of bragging and even beyond the cultural thing, I think there's just a personality thing. Some folks just don't feel very comfortable talking about themselves. But I think it's really hard, coming back to Mark's point about agency and taking responsibility for your career, I think it's very hard to accomplish what you want to accomplish and get the best possible outcome if someone is not taking an accounting of the things you're good at and the things you've accomplished. And who's that someone going to be if it's not you? Exactly. One way I like to point people out to not brag, to not think about it as bragging, is to essentially show proof of work or <laughs> essentially show things that you cannot fake. So if you say you're award-winning, show me the award. Is it some made-up award or some award that actually matters? If you say you're a thought leader, well, you automatically disqualify from being a thought leader. <laughs> <laughs> this is very common, by the way. Like A lot of people would say like they're some kind of thought leader and they don't show evidence because they don't have any. Yeah. But if you do, if you do have substance to back up your claims and show it, then no one really can dispute with you on what the quality of your accomplishments have done. I think, honestly, it's a way to just make it easier for people to get to know you, to shortcut the awkward dance that you do when you meet people for the first time and you don't really know what they've done in their life <laughs> and how you should be addressing that person. So, yeah, I just think basically get over it and do it interesting stuff enough that you'll be comfortable putting it on your resume. Because if you're not comfortable, that also probably shows something about the scope of your ambitions and maybe you should push yourself a little bit more. One thing I'll mention as well, which is another anecdote that I have, because I think you mentioned a little bit about negotiation, which is another piece of career advice that I had with a friend. So a friend of mine who I've been advising because he recently graduated from college and got a job at a well-known tech company, he found out that his coworker was getting twice the equity that he got. He was really pissed. He only started a job for like three, four months. And he was like, I don't know, like we have the same amount of experience. Like I'm doing more than him at my current job and he's getting twice the equity and the way the equity systems work in the US, like this is locked in for four years. It's kind of unfair, of course. But I told him the problem is that 
you're getting half the equity of your peers and you're trying to renegotiate for better equity relative to your peers. I think for you, the better angle for your career is to get new peers. It's kind of like when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. When people give you peers that you don't compare that well to, for whatever reason, you didn't negotiate with that well, they looked at you wrong, whatever. Don't care. Just get new peers. Just make yourself in a completely different category that the next time this conversation comes around in two years or four years, it just doesn't happen because they want you so badly for the things that you've done. And I think his anxiety went away when he realized that it's not about the short-term gain and keeping up with the Joneses. It's about being in a different neighborhood. I'll point out that a lot of the career stuff we've been talking about here so far is call it human stuff around the edges. It's not, okay, you should study algorithms and then React and then whatever, Postgres, <laughs> right? I mean, I'm sure we have lots of suggestions on that front. We could give them on this podcast perhaps, but I think people underestimate how important this stuff is. It's really important. It's really valuable. It's easy to form your mind, especially coming out of undergraduate where everything is like formalized tests and classes and grades. A lot of the important career work does not look like that. It's this dark matter that exists between people. And to your experience, Sean, I think it's really critical to speak with people who are five, 10 years ahead of you in a similar journey because they're going to have all kinds of weird stuff that they've seen, all kinds of interesting tricks that they know of, and they can give you those heads up. It sounds almost too good to be true, but you can just like email a handful of, for example, engineering hiring managers and your career earnings go up by whatever, six figures easily. So I encourage people to take advantage of just speaking to people and having a conversation and get advice. Maybe that advice is to kind of pay attention to the basic human dynamics is also especially valuable in a field where maybe a lot of us were drawn to it because we're not that good at humans or, you know, we're <laughs> young introverted kids that learn to play with computers and we were more comfortable there maybe than we were in social settings, for example. That's obviously not true for everyone in the field, but lots of people are in that position. But then it turns out that products are made by companies and companies are groups of people who are working together and groups of people working together always have social dynamics. And of course, the individual humans involved have their own thoughts and feelings and emotions and you have your own thoughts and feelings and emotions. And just knowing a little bit about how to navigate all that can make a very big difference for you to being able to integrate to the organization and again, have the work you want to have and have the impact you want to have. I have one more point to bring up in terms of sort of general career advice. I think, yes, we want to be intentional or try to point ourselves at worthwhile problems that we think that we can solve and grow together with the industry in. But then there's a lot of randomness and serendipity. And I think being able to square the intentionality and the randomness, I think the best way that I've heard about it is to create luck. And it's like, how can luck be created? It just happens to you. And I think this is one of the biggest mental model shifts that I've had in my career so far that I received as advice from people that were ahead of me. I'll bring you through a sort of like a four-stage mental model if you're ready to do that. So like the first stage of thinking about luck is that people are either lucky or unlucky. There's people that you know, like things just happened for them. I don't know what happened, but they're lucky. And I'm not like that, so... I just kind of treat them as different than myself. And I think that's a very static view of how luck is distributed in the world. The second stage of this mental model is progressing from that to having some agency in the matter, which is something that Mark, you brought up. And the term that is very popular for this is having a luck surface area, which is that people who are lucky have a larger luck surface area 
for capturing the random luck that happens in the universe, as opposed to people who are not lucky. What kind of luck surface area are we talking about? The two typical axes that people give are, are a combination of doing and telling. Like, have you done enough that is noteworthy for people to take notice of your work? And then have you told people about it? A lot of people, particularly on this podcast, are doers and they're maybe not so comfortable with the telling. But you have to kind of do both in equal amounts to get your message out there, to get your work out there so that you get opportunities for future work that compounds and compounds and compounds. But you have to sort of think about it in terms of that two-dimensional graphic of luck surface area rather than one-dimensional lucky or not lucky binary metric. Then the third progression in this line of thinking is that there are four kinds of luck. So you sort of split that two-dimensional chart into a, like a two-by-two. Two. So I kind of turn, if you imagine like a two-by-two two diagram, the y-axis you can sort of split into active versus passive. And the x-axis you can split into general versus individual. So for example, general and passive luck is luck that just happens to you. It's the same luck that a plant would have just being born where it is. A lot of this comes from privilege, but a lot of this just comes from just sheer randomness in the universe. But active luck, for example, that is general is from you just doing random things, trying all sorts of things and seeing what sticks, kind of throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks, right? And you can sort of think about career analogies for that as well. But where things become really individual is that, for example, you've sort of primed yourself throughout your career to notice certain opportunities. And when it happens, you are one of maybe five individuals in the world that can take advantage of it because you've just spent all your life preparing for this. And when it happens, you really capitalize on that. And that really works out for career progression as well. And then finally, the fourth category, which is active luck, that is also individual focused, is what I call magnetic luck, which is that you've done so much in your life and you've built such a strong network that you draw people to you in the sense that people come your way because they know to seek you out. And I really like this as a mental model because Obviously, it's an aspirational thing, but I do really like the fact that you don't do as much work, but people are drawn to you for your specific skill set that only you can fill. Like there's a sort of U-shaped hole in the universe and you've created that sort of suction energy or gravitational pull that people find you. And I think as far as careers go, the more unique you are or the more unsubstitutable you are, the better compensated you will be. And the more you enjoy your job, to be honest, right? And so finally, throughout all of that, I think there's a lot of focus on being in the right place at the right time. The final stage of this model that I developed for myself is the concept and the place of strategy. Instead of being in the right place at the right time, try to think actively about where the puck is going. A lot of times I call this the meta game behind the game. So a lot of times you're playing two games at once. You're playing the game with the rules as they are written right now. And then you're also looking out for how the rules are changing and going towards that and hopefully being in a position to change those rules to benefit yourself. <laughs> but to me, that's strategy, right? To being able to say like, okay, the status quo is this. I can play by this system, but at the same time, the system is probably going to change in a certain way. If you have an active opinion on that, you can just leave behind the old system and just go straight for the new one because that's ultimately where you want to go. I'll stop there. I feel like I've been rambling for a bit. I wanted to just drop this because I think luck plays a huge role in careers, but often people don't really have a system to think about luck. I like the framework. I think that knowing that, of course, there's always this huge amount of, as you described, randomness or privilege or just, yeah, the everyone has a very unique and different circumstances, time and place you were born, particular capabilities you have, just people you just randomly happen to meet. 
that may have opportunities for you. But being alert for those opportunities and doing what you can to maximize your opportunities, well, that is something you can actively do. And I think it's probably a recipe for happiness in life in general to focus on the things you can affect and work on those things and then try not to lose too much sleep over the things that are circumstance that are essentially forced upon you by the universe. <laughs> exactly. Do you have any good personal stories about sort of using some elements of this framework or essentially creating that luck to find your way to, especially the role you're in now that I've heard you speak with great pleasure about? Was there some of this framework that fed into you being able to find this? Yeah. So that blog post that I wrote directly led to me getting hired for the role. And in fact, the full story is a little bit more complicated than that. The blog post that I wrote generated some comments. And one of the commenters on that blog post got hired as head of product for Temporal. And that guy turned around to hire me because obviously I wrote that blog post. So out of that blog post, two jobs came out. But I think the more general meta thing is to write about the most interesting problem in your domain and just to work towards that. Because I think problems are inherently more attractive than solutions. They're inherently more timeless than solutions. Mm. A lot of people are like, very focused on solutions. Like, what's the best tool for personal knowledge management? What's the best tool for thought? (laughs) But really, like, okay, sure. Like, every solution out there is just one instantiation of one team's current way of thinking of how to solve this. But if you study the problem and the infinite depths of the nuances to what people really want out of that problem, you have a more general and timeless model for evaluating solutions to aligning your career with those solutions and to see what's missing, that kind of look for the negative space and if that's valuable enough to pursue it. And it's kind of what I did with the whole long-running job thing. I was like, okay, service is a really well, very competitive space, but hey, the long-running job thing is not really being done. And so you just write about it. And I think when the opportunity comes up, it looks like nothing happened for like a year. When the opportunity comes up, you're in a place to have thought through at least the arguments for it so that when they came calling, I picked up the phone. Where in a lot of situations, you would ignore an email like that. And that's also you know something I talked about with the passive individual luck, which I call sort of prepared luck. There's some situations where you have to kind of prime yourselves because these opportunities happen at random to people and they're ignored all the time. Because you've just trained yourself to say, like, this is just one of many opportunities. I haven't really thought about it. But if you do work hard to understand like what could be missing, then you prime yourself a little bit better to write it. So yeah, I definitely say that I've unintentionally aligned myself towards this framework. Just again, this is retroactively breaking it down for myself. Yeah, that's a great story. And another thing I think it illustrates well is how unknowable the payoffs are oh, yeah. for your discrete investment in one's career capital, if you will. You won't know and you can't know if, how, and when these investments are going to pay off. In practice, what we see is it takes a very winding course. You know, it's like a year later, someone read a comment and then, you know, emails or whatever, you know, many such cases. And I think that's one of the things that makes it so hard to do. You have to, you know, sit down and write a blog post, which everyone knows is a huge amount of work and you're dealing with people commenting about you on the internet and blah, blah, blah. But you have to kind of believe that probabilistically at some point in the future, this will pay off. And I think it's just important to be aware of that. Because otherwise, one's going to be frustrated. It's not something that you can pick an outcome and say, I want to achieve that, therefore I'm going to do this investment. It's much more probabilistic and random. The flip side of that is that it becomes optionality. You know, If one has career capital, you can, if you will, call on that in different ways throughout your career. And you don't need to know at the time of creating it how you will make that call. I think that's very well put. 
my personal reflection on this, by the way, is uh, this becomes a problem when your job involves the industrial production of these kinds of things, the industrial production of luck. <laughs> like I just told you, like the feedback cycle is over a year from me publishing that blog post to me getting the job. That doesn't fit in any OKR or performance review cycle. And when your job is kind of creating content or creating luck in different ways, whether it is sort of laying the seeds. So for example, I have some customers now who I think are potential investments, but they won't pay off for another two, three years. So they're viewed as dead weight by some people, but in two, three years from now, again, like there'll be a whole different team taking credit for the groundwork that we laid today. And I think you just kind of have to take a very long-term view for that. And I wonder how to measure this because people ask me like, how do you measure your like output or how do you justify the time that you spend on all this personal content? And I'm like, I don't know, but I just generally believe that doing good things leads to good outcomes. Like there's a bit of mystic karma that you have, kind of have to suspend your disbelief for, but hopefully it kind of works out. It is an open question. How do you measure this? <laughs> you... Yeah, it's a tough matter of judgment, which by the way, kind of seems isomorphic with the startup investing problem. And I think that <laughs> the state-of-the-art solution is similar, which is you find people who have good demonstrated ability to evaluate these things and you get their advice and opinion. So this circles back to my suggestion earlier of speaking with people who are a little bit further ahead in their journey. They can't give you a closed-form solution for how to evaluate your personal capital <laughs> investments, but they can give you their appraisal. I like that. Yeah, hearing you describe it that way it made me think of investing. It also makes me think of sales, for example, especially enterprise sales. It can be very long cycle as an element of this. And research, right? The work Mark and I were doing at Ink and Switch and the work that team continues to do where you know, you can have KPIs around papers published and citations <laughs> and things, and that is what tends to kind of drive the academic world. But the reality is it is a very long-term investment. Most of it won't pay off, but the things that do pay off, you know, occasionally you invent calculus or split the atom or whatever, and those payoffs are so big that it's worth having a big portfolio of these things. And so it's probably the same for career investments, whether it's finding opportunities through blog posts, through attending events where you're likely to meet other like-minded people, and so on. It's a long and steady portfolio of investments. And over time, you can post hoc show how it paid off, but it's really hard to measure it in a week-by-week -week or month-by-month -month metric. Yeah, totally. I will say that there is a noticeable difference between people who engage in these luck creation activities. Let's just call it LCAs. There's a general category of like blogging, speaking, whatever, right? Putting yourself out there. There are some people who just do it because they are told that it's a good thing to do and then they do that. And others who do it because they're genuinely interested in the thing that they're working on. And every time it's super obvious which is which. And one is just completely not that valuable. And I wish I could tell them without offending them. And the others, I wish they would do more of. And a lot of them don't because they don't know that they have it, whatever it is. And basically what I'm saying is like the outcomes are almost secondary to you loving the process. Mm. Just falling in love with the process, making the best thing you could possibly make like for its own sake, not because you think some benefit will flow back to you eventually, because it will. But if you're motivated by the benefit first, you'll make a worse product. That to me also circles back to something I realized at some point in my career, which is I care very much about the mission, the impact, you know, the thing you're making, right? I want to go to work for this company because they make this product, or I want to get involved with this group that's working on this open source project or whatever, because I love the product or the problem they're solving or whatever. 
And that remains incredibly important to me, but it has become of equal importance to me the, exactly as you said, loving the process, loving the act of what I'm doing when I sit down every day and whether or not this particular product I'm working on, a particular project I'm involved in right now has kind of the impact I want it to have because, again, some do, some don't. That's part of the business, but I want to know that I've enjoyed the day-to-day, the week-to-week, and a lot of that is the people I'm working with, the specifics of what kind of work I'm doing, and maybe the vibe of the team, the culture, even something like the tools we use, right? That if the tools make the creative process and my daily work kind of enjoyable and fun versus they're sort of clunky and (laughs) feel like they're holding me back. It's those collection of things really matter a lot. And in fact, I've told the story on the podcast before, but I, similar to you, made a transition, career transition from video games early in my life. And that was something I was passionate about, making games. And I still think games are an incredible form of art. But the process, at least at the time I was involved in it, the way the teams worked and the tools and all that sort of thing were very punishing. I would describe it as it wasn't worth that to me. It wasn't worth hating the day-to-day in exchange for producing a thing I'm proud of at the end or an art form that I wanted to be involved in. You kind of have to go through that journey to appreciate what you have today, don't you? (laughs) Quite so, yeah. I never would have thought, you know, as a younger person that business and productivity software (laughs) would make me a lot happier than writing video games for a living. But, you know, sometimes you got to maybe achieve your dream to realize it's not what you want after all. So a lot of people come to me actually they're inspired by games. A lot of us got into programming because of games and design because of games. But then I immediately tell them to avoid the AAA game industry like play, right? And I wonder how to fix that because like that cannot be a sustainable way of things. And I don't know, like game dev just seems like such a dead end career because it takes such talented developers, pays them nothing and they all come out burned out. (laughs) And I feel like we should talk about this more because like, how do we fix this? (laughs) Yeah, well, I feel the indie game revolution, you might call it, when that sort of started to happen, I think it was kind of in the late aughts, as we're calling that decade now, but things like Braid, for example, was I think one of the first kind of like what seemed to me successful relative mainstream success made by a relatively small team, partially enabled by these new platforms like the Xbox Marketplace and Steam and so on. So to me, I could imagine myself getting back into games now. I wouldn't do that because I'm love what I'm doing. But there is, a coming back to this venue idea or container, you know, the AAA in game industry was not the right venue for me to express my ideas and do my work. But something like the indie games world where a couple of people can make a successful game that has a lot of art and makes a unique statement and can be played by a lot of people and, well, you can make a living from it. And the style and approach and, you know, just, I don't know, work-life balance of the indie games industry is quite a different beast from the AAA world. Yeah, for me, this also loops back to the agency discussion and this idea of actively understanding the world. I'm not sure because I don't know a lot of people who entered and exited the AAA space, but my suspicion is that there's a few fields where people really significantly misestimate the nature of the work in totality, including the conditions and the career implications and compensation and hours and things like this. And I think that's one of them. And I think they get a little bit blinded by what they see on the outside. And I think if one took more time to see what's on the inside, they might come to a different conclusion. Now, I think there's also an element of people, they know that's there and they still want to do it, you know, because people are different, you know, fair enough. But I suspect this is a case where it's worth it to really go in and understand what it's actually like, you know, do an internship or speak to several people who have done it for a decade and 
go in with eyes open. Talk to your elders. <laughs> it's a good piece of general advice. Yeah, absolutely. Well, lots of eye-opening things in this conversation here already. The last one I want to make sure we talk about, because I think, Sean, you mentioned it a few times, is what I would call specialization. That idea was the U-shaped hole in the universe, which is sort of how much your skills are very particular. And it seems, I guess, kind of counterintuitive that having a very general skill set, being a jack of all trades or being a generalist engineer, I don't know, full stack engineer or generalist designer or something, you would think that would make you more employable because you can fit more potential jobs. But it seems to be the opposite of that. When you have some very high degree of specialization, both in your skills, but also that you're known for, you're that one person that has that very particular skill set and people know that and your phone rings when someone needs that specific thing, maybe to your earlier point about your blog post on the asynchronous world of services. How should, especially younger folks who are just getting started, how should they think about the benefits or downsides of specialization and how to find their specialty? Oh, okay. My approach to this, which is a topic I cover in the book actually, is you should specialize in peacetime and generalize in wartime. Mostly because specialization, yes, is very valuable. And a lot of people will be seduced away from it because they want to have an approximate knowledge of all things. <laughs> they want to sort of view themselves as pluripotent to be capable of a lot of things. But I think you only understand what it's like to master something if you just spend a lot of time digging into it. And learning how to master things is a skill in itself. And you don't get there by being a generalist at a bunch of different things. You get there by breaking through the basic things that everybody knows and then understanding which part of that is not true and really getting to the nuance of that and then getting to know all your peers who are masters and understanding instead of looking at them as heroes, they actually all have flaws too and they're coming up with their own theories. Like that whole journey of mastery of a domain is something that we systematically underrate. And being able to specialize and get to a mastery in a field that you know all these things that you both know the things that everyone thinks that they know. You both know the underlying lies to that, but then you also know what could be improved and you have an opinion on the other experts in the field. I think that's super valuable and can be only developed when a company or a problem domain gives you like the space to do that. But you will be forced to generalize when you basically don't have a choice, when there's no one else doing that task and it needs to be done. And surprise, surprise, you're it. <laughs> and so... That's how I view about it. Like when you can specialize, especially if the company gives you the space to do it, because you'll be learning so much that other people just don't have access to. And you can trade that specialty in with other specialists, right? You don't have that much to offer if you're just a journalist, you know, you know the average of what most people who spend some time at it know. But if you're a specialist in something and you can sort of deal with other specialists and other things and have some kind of equal value to exchange there. So I do view that as valuable career capital keyword to offer. This is obviously a concept from Cal Newport, an author that we both like, but I actually haven't read the book that it comes from. So I don't actually know what the career capital concept comes from. It's just what I intuit as the value of building up reputation and skills in a specific career. Yeah, the book you're referencing, I believe it's called So Good They Can't Ignore You. I read it quite some time back. I think it was one of the things that helped influence me to think more of my own career as a first-class concern to invest in. 
And I should have pulled my highlights from the book to refresh myself before we talked here. But briefly, I would summarize that basically a career capital is this accumulation of, it's certainly specialization and skills, but it's also reputation, it's network, you know, people that you've worked with in the past or know who you are, people that trust the work you do or that you trust them or you have a good established lines of communication. It's all of these things together. And one of the things that was powerful for me about that concept is that career capital, yes, can be directly translated to earning potential. You can make more money if you have, you know, bigger skills and a better network and whatever. But actually, the more valuable thing, I think, for a lot of folks that I know in this kind of modern world is one of flexibility and being able to kind of make maybe lifestyle design is the slightly hackneyed term for this, but the idea that when your skills are relatively undifferentiated or you don't have a ton of career capital, you kind of have to fit into the box that's offered you. You know, here's this job, it's nine to five, you go to this office, you dress this way, you sit in this cubicle kind of thing. And the more you have great career capital, the more you are able to, for example, going to become a freelancer, for example, is much easier to do when you have that list of connections that you've made in the past and people that know you for being really great at a particular thing and are likely to want to hire you in the future and pay you on an hourly basis, for example. And then, of course, that is a way to get more flexibility and freedom and agency in your life. So yeah, like the career capital concept is a thing to work towards in your career not just for how do I get the bigger title or the corner office or the money, but as a way to lead the kind of life I want to lead, which for a lot of people may have to do with spending more time with family or getting to work in the evening hours because that's when they're more productive or take you know three months off in the summertime to go pursue their weird sport or whatever. <laughs> and so that's a powerful thing if you invest and work towards that goal. There is a finance analogy that I really like from Kevin Kwok. I highly recommend following him as a tech investor slash thinker because he talks about P-E ratios on your substance. So what is a P-E ratio? It's like the ratio of your price in your stock market to earnings. And he cites Elon Musk as someone who has a very high P-E ratio on anything that he does. You know, he'll do one thing and then he'll tell everyone about it and everyone suddenly thinks he's the world expert on it. And he may or may not be, but he becomes that way. And it's very useful currency to trade in for the things he actually wants to do, right? Giving that to his engineers to work on. And it's in some way that is financial analogy to career capital, which I never thought about until I heard Kemi Kwok talk about it. Well, that's a great advice here. The closing question, I think that, you know, anyone on the engineering side is going to have. Sean, please tell us, how does one become a 10x developer? <laughs> so... Depending on who you talk to, 10x developers either do or do not exist. Essentially, they are developers that have 10 times the impact of the average developer, however you measure it, whether it's by business impact or naively by lines of code. There's also some ways that you could sort of think about that. My humble opinion, at least this is how it works out in the capital markets or in capitalism, is 10x developers do exist. And one example of a 10x developer that I bring up in the book is Jeff Dean and Sanjay Gamawat, who are... In the rankings of Google software engineers, they have sort of software engineer 1 to 10. They're the only ones at 11. Kind of a very spinal tap way to rank engineers. And one of the comments that I've seen about their work, because Google code commits are publicly available within Google, is that they actually could commit just about the same amount of code as an entry-level software engineer. Just about the same. Like, they're not particularly prolific, but their choice of problem in what they work on has enabled them to 
create Google Brain, MapReduce, Hadoop, whatever. And I think that's my insight, which is that being a tennis developer is not about the cleanliness of your code, not about your knowledge of the intricacies of a framework. It's about knowing which problem to work on. And I think that's a good analogy for anyone who, not just developers, on your career choice. It's not about how well you practice your craft. Like, let's just assume that you're competent in your craft. From that base assumption of competency, then you should also spend probably equal or more amount of time on what you're working on, because that's probably more likely determinant of your career outcomes. Like, I think of you as a better designer if you came from Figma, not knowing anything else about you, just because Figma turned out to be a much more impactful company than some other company that has not had such an impactful name. So that's my pitch for having some form of strategy in your career planning. Well, let's wrap it there. Thanks everyone for listening. If you have feedback, write us on Twitter at MuseAppHQ or via email, hello at MuseApp.com. And we love it when you leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts. And Sean, thanks for helping guide us all as you first learn in public and then help us think about career as a first-class concern and make our own luck. Thanks so much. <laughs>